So I want to focus here at the end of Luke 7 on the incident of the, uh, the two sinners. This is the woman in the city who is a sinner and the uh, Simon who was also a sinner and their response to that forgiveness of sin. Now then, let's uh, bear in mind the hospitality culture which there was in the first century and how extremely important it was to entertain people properly and to respond to that uh, acceptance of you as a guest in the right way and never to criticize your host, etc. These things were extremely important in uh, first century Palestinian culture. So this man has not, this Simon, he has not done what he should have done. He didn't, Jesus said, kiss him. He didn't get Jesus' feet washed and his feet weren't dried. Now this is a snub to Jesus, uh, a mocking of him. And Jesus doesn't turn around and say, well, you insulted me, so I'm out of here. Instead, he says that this Pharisee Simon owed him 50 pence, as I understand it, in the parable, and he's been forgiven. But the woman in the city who was a sinner was incensed by what had been done to Jesus, that he had been snubbed, he had been treated rudely, and so she lets herself go with absolute abandon to make up for the lack of hospitality that's been shown to Jesus. And so she feels hurt for the insult and the rejection that was made against Jesus. Now, if we love Jesus as a person, and that is the essence of all our walking in Christ, to love him as a person, then we also will feel hurt for the way that he was rejected, mocked and insulted, above all in the, the crucifixion, which is what we're here to think about in that sense of the breaking of bread, and yet also, generally, in, in life, the way that all his love and poured out grace towards people has been so cruelly rejected, and that he, has, he is therefore hurt. And she was hurt for his hurt. And by way of challenge to us, let's just ask ourselves whether that is our feeling. When we think of Jesus and what's, what happened to him, the buffeting by the soldiers, the betrayal by Judas, the mocking, etc., etc., and the final shame of, of naked crucifixion, I say that because he was put to a, a naked shame, open shame, Hebrews says, it seems to me that if we really love him, we will feel hurt for him. Now, when we think about Jesus in his time of dying, well, what do we feel? We can just too quickly say, oh, wasn't it awful? Oh, poor Jesus. But if we really know him as a person, our thoughts and our feelings will go beyond that very general shrugging of our shoulders. Uh, and saying, well, wasn't that awful? Wasn't that disgusting what people did? Uh, we will go deeper than that and feel something of his hurt. Now that's what this woman did. And she doesn't care that people are going to mock her, that she was uh, known as a sinner, as a, a prostitute, uh, the implication would be. And she touched him. She touched his body. Now that was something absolutely despised in first century uh, culture. A woman just doesn't come on at a man like that. And in fact, the Greek word to touch there is uh, the same word, uh, to light a fire. 
And it's the same word in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1 where he talks about a man not touching a woman. He, Paul clearly wrote that with a, in a sexual uh, context. So then she was unashamed. And she breaks open the uh, ointment that, uh, that she's got, this uh, very expensive uh, box of ointment, and she anoints him. And you wonder where she got that from. Well, it was probably a payment for former prostitution. And she pours that out on Jesus, and she lets her hair down. Now, there's evidence for believing that if a woman let her hair down in public in front of another man, then her husband could divorce her. So, this was all very, very shocking, and Jesus doesn't stop her. I would say that she's... Uh, showing a kind of an abandon, almost, in how she's behaving. Not sexually, but an abandon that arises from knowing that I have been forgiven. And now, mock me, be disgusted in your middle-class way, all you like. This is for real. This is how I really feel for Jesus. And I think that that's really the spirit that we should have. We who are so terribly shy to publicly say a word for the Lord Jesus in the societies and the contexts and maybe the families and the workplaces where we spend our lives. But it's that devotion to him which leads us to say, look, I am for him and I love him. And you call me a whore and, and all the rest of it, and you uh, act in your disgusted, tut-tutting kind of way. I do not care. I love him. And she goes away, Jesus says, in or into peace, with the Lord passionately having taken her side and defending her to the world. And there's something in that which I think we should take. It's rather like how the women stood by the cross of Jesus, when Tacitus records in his Annals of History that... Those who stood by the cross of the crucified should be punished and sometimes were also crucified. They were not allowed to do that. They had to stand in the crowd. And so those women and John stepped out from the crowd and walked across the no-man's land between the crowd and the cross of Jesus with the soldiers guarding it, and they stood there. And I think, incidentally, that's why Jesus basically says to John, Look, go away, take my mum away. He's sort of saying thank you. I so appreciate it, but you don't have to uh, be crucified with me. You don't have to do this. I understand. Just, just go away. And uh, it's that sense that we should have as we look at the cross of Jesus, that inspiration to walk out through that no man's land between the crowd and the cross and say, I don't care. These are my principles. This is the one, the man, whom I have sold my soul for and mock on and say as you like and punish me as you wish but I am for him now most of us I suppose don't live in the situation where we are literally physically persecuted it's not as if we are living in Iran most of us where you stand up for Jesus and you really will be lynched or Afghanistan or, or whatever and yet we would be totally missing the point if we were to think oh those poor brethren out in those countries uh, so much easier for us well it, you know it can't be so that it's easier for some to come to God's kingdom than others I do think that it's the same level of calling for us as well as for them 
Now, in verse 39, the man said within himself, She's a sinner. Verse 40, But Jesus answering said unto him, Answering. You could say that, well, he had a bolt of Holy Spirit illumination that enabled him to read Simon's mind, but I don't think so. I think his sensitivity to people was such that he could perceive people's self-talk just as sometimes we can. Of course, we, we get it wrong often. We think someone's thinking such and such in their mind when they're not. But the Lord Jesus was far more spiritually and psychologically developed than, than we are, and he got it right every time. And so when he answered and said unto him, he correctly read that this guy was thinking, she's a sinner. And he rebukes the lack of hospitality which he's been shown. Now, that, in the first century context, was absolutely unacceptable, to rebuke your host for an error or an inadequacy in his hospitality. And notice how many times the Gospels, particularly Luke and Mark, record incidents that happened at meal tables. And particularly, I think, this was because the initial readership of the Gospels would have been the groups of house churches which met over a meal to break bread in memory of Jesus and to remember him. And that's very similar, I think, with how it is now in the 21st century in a slightly different way, but it's the same. Little groups of believers here and there meeting around a table to remember Jesus. So, verse 41, Jesus saw that hypocritical uh, Simon as the man forgiven 50 pence and therefore he says he loved him but he loved him less than the woman who had been forgiven 500 pence and let's just think about that because that shows the generous way in which Jesus reads people in the same chapter um, earlier we read in verse 24 about John the Baptist and Jesus said what did you go out into the wilderness for to see a reed shaken with the wind no this man verse 26 was more than a prophet and yet at this time John was in fact a reed shaken in the wind because there he is in prison and he doesn't know is Jesus really the Messiah or not and he sends uh, verse 19, he's, well, sorry, he's not in prison, but he sends two of his disciples, verse 19, to say, are you he that should come? And Jesus turns around and says to the people, look, John's not a reed shaken in the wind. Well, he was shaken in the wind, as it were, but Jesus was so positive about John. And the spirit of positivity that he had was wonderful. It's not the same as naivety, as living in a sort of cloud cuckoo land as living in Alice in Wonderland trying to pretend everything's hunky-dory when it isn't. That's naivety. Positivity is not the same. And so Jesus says that this Pharisee is someone who has been forgiven 50 pence but he loves him less than the person forgiven 500 pence. That's a very generous way to look at this man. I mean, he's snubbed Jesus, he's not given him hospitality, he's not had his feet washed, he's not greeted him with a kiss. And Jesus is so positive. He says, look, you're forgiven. But you're only forgiven 50 pence, and that's why you love little. The man doesn't appear to love him at all. And there's no evidence that the guy had repented. And yet, 
Jesus says, basically, I have forgiven you. And I think it is wrong to think that God's forgiveness, or the forgiveness of Jesus, comes when we repent. There is uh, plenty of reason to think that God has forgiven us in Christ. That, in fact, all sin was, in a sense, forgiven. But we have to claim that forgiveness. And the important thing, as we see here, is how you respond to that forgiveness, whether you believe it. Now, Jesus had forgiven the man. That's, I think, the significant thing in all this. Now, the woman had also been forgiven. But there's, again, no evidence that she had gone up to Jesus and said, you know what, just a minute, Jesus, just come over here for a minute. Look look here. I did this, 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 that, and the other. Do you forgive me? And Jesus said, yeah, sure, I forgive you. Oh, you're the best. Now I'm going to wash your feet. She had been forgiven, but I think there is no specific statement of her repentance, neither of Simon's repentance. The issue is they had been forgiven, but the question was their response to that forgiveness. And I think we need to bear that in mind in all the wrangles that go on over whether someone has repented and been forgiven by God. That's a deep, dark forest, as the Russians say, and don't get into it. It's not our business. I think we have to accept that God forgives people on whatever basis he does that. And the existence of specific verbalized formal repentance is one thing. The fact is, he's forgiven them. The issue is our response and these two people's response to that forgiveness. So if we worry about whether Jesus is really going to accept us at the last day, you know, the more you read the scriptures and the more you reflect upon the work of Jesus and how he was in his life and the principles he operated by, we need not fear. What we should be concerned about is our response to that forgiveness. He forgave this irritating, proud, arrogant guy called Simon, And he had a a real hopefulness for Simon, that Simon would respond to that forgiveness. Now, of course, there's, as so often there is in the parables of Jesus, there's a a trick in the tale. There's a, a final twist to the whole thing. He says, Simon, you were forgiven 50 pence, so you love me little. This woman was forgiven 500 pence, so there she is pouring her love all over me. She loves me very much because I've forgiven her a lot. The point is, though, but Simon, you should have done what she did, and she only did it washing my feet with tears because you didn't wash my feet. She only kissed me because you didn't kiss me. The implication is, Simon, you should have done what she did. And because you didn't, that's why she did it. So... The flick in the tail is that, Simon, you actually owe me 500 pence. And if you would believe in that, that you really do, if you would perceive that, then you would have uh, entertained me as she did. You would have accepted me with the love and the abandon that she did. And so this man, for all his piety, for all his religious front that he had, really hadn't perceived how much he had been forgiven. And so in that sense, sin and and repentance is a matter of perception. This woman had in fact not 
sinned so dramatically ten times more than Simon. He should have done what she did. He should have perceived that he was just as bad as her. And this, I think, is the real challenge for lower middle class, middle class, upper middle class uh, believers who don't, as it were, put a foot dramatically wrong, who are not prostitutes, who are not murderers, who are not drug addicts, who are not these kind of people as, as she was. For them to realize that, in fact, they have sinned just as seriously, just as radically as a woman like this prostitute. That's a real problem. And yet, once that perception is realized, that really I have, that my judgment, my judgmentalism, my arrogance, my lack of faith, lack of commitment, lack of generosity, lack of forgiveness, lack of kindness, that that's just as bad as this woman selling her body on the street, then this is the key, I think, to getting out of the rut of mediocrity, the mire of mediocrity, which I think is the, the bane of so much uh, Christian living today. If you perceive the, the depth of your sin and therefore the, the depth of your forgiveness, this will inspire you to rise up and be like her with this abandon. Now, when he says that uh, in verse 46 that you didn't anoint my head with oil and my feet with ointment, he's quoting here from Psalm 23 verse 5 where God says that he or, anointed David's head and prepared a feast for him in the presence of his enemies. Very similar, really, situation to Jesus in the presence of his enemies here. And maybe the historical connection is with uh, Barzillai preparing that unexpected feast for David in the wilderness and maybe anointing him also, although it's not uh, actually recorded there in the historical record. The point is that it is God who anointed the head with oil and the feet with ointment in the presence of David's enemies. And Jesus is saying the God who did that is manifest in this woman who did that. This prostitute who did that, this repentant woman, this forgiven woman who did all that, she is God manifest. And I think that Paul perceived the way that Mary, uh, or this, this woman, let's say, uh, is in fact our pattern. Because very often in his writings, he's alluding back to the Gospels, once every two or three verses. And in 1 Timothy 1, 14 and 15, he says that he labored more abundantly than anyone else because of the depth of grace that he had known. Now, taking those words out of their context, ripping them out of the... Uh, the context of forgiveness, they would be arrogant. I worked harder than the rest of you. And yet he's not being arrogant. He's saying that because I was shown so much grace, therefore I labored more abundantly than you all. Because I sinned more than you all. Or more to the point, I perceive that I sinned more than you all. And he has, I'm sure, Mary in mind. Here he had his mind on this verse 47. She loved much because she had been forgiven much. And so, <clears throat> just one, uh, one last point in verse 42 that I intended to make. 
The RV says when they realised that they had nothing wherewith to pay, he frankly forgave them. Now, that is reading a lot of hopeful motive into Simon, that he realised there was nothing he could do to repay his sin to Jesus, but Jesus uh, forgave him anyway. Um, that's uh, an encouragement to us, and we wonder, has God forgiven me? Sure, he's eager to forgive. I mean, so many verses in the Psalms say this, that God is a God eager to forgive, and that he delights in, in doing it. He delights in forgiving. Uh, and you see here, I think, Jesus almost willing this guy into repentance, imagining, as it were, that he had. The point is, when we realize that we have nothing to pay with, he frankly forgives us. And it's the frankness of that forgiveness which we're here to celebrate in, in bread and wine. And yet, we'll only get there. We'll only get to that appreciation if we truly realize, I have nothing to pay. If we turn our pockets inside out and recognize I have not a penny. I am penniless. I cannot repay. Because you can't repay sin. Sin brings death and that is that. There is no way out, humanly speaking, in your own strength. But because we realize that, realizing that they had nothing wherewith to pay, verse 42 in the RV, therefore, he frankly forgave them. Now, we have received that frank forgiveness, every single one of us, and don't think that doesn't apply to you, it does, because it applied even to this arrogant, up-himself Simon the Pharisee. You have been forgiven, but the key issue is our response to that.